Hi, I'm JJ McQuarrie. And I'm Kevin Kozer. And we host Talking Who to You, a podcast dedicated to the Big Finish audio adventures of Doctor Who. Each week, we look at a different Doctor Who story from Big Finish and share what we love and what we don't. We're looking at everything from the very first stories to David Tennant's most recent adventures, and we hope that you'll join us. You can find us on iTunes, SoundCloud, and pretty much wherever you find podcasts. So give us a listen, and remember, keep talking who. Hello fellow time travellers, I'm Fraser Hines and I play Jamie McCrimmon in Doctor Who, and you are listening to the Doctor Who Target Book Club podcast. Enjoy your travels, or as Jamie might say, enjoy your travels. Hello fellow time travelers and welcome back to the Doctor Who Target Book Club, the podcast in which we undertake the seemingly endless task of discussing in story order all the Doctor Who novelizations. My name is Tony Witt and today we have an unusually large four-person discussion panel, including our so-called expert who's been a Who fan since 1979, that would be me. There's also our intermediate-level casual fan who's seen several episodes but has not previously read any of the books until these podcasts, and this time, it's the worthy Dalton Hughes. Hello, Dalton. Hi, hi, hi. I'm back, I'm back, I'm back. <laughs> and, and adding to that song every time. <laughs> we also have our semi-novice fan, one who's seen little to none of the original series and has not previously read any of the books except the ones we've done for this podcast this time around. It's the wise and witty Alison fitch Seyfried. Hello, Alison. Good afternoon. And finally... We have our special guest panelist, the producer and co-host of the Talking Who to You podcast, and our favorite expert on all things Scottish, Mr. J.G. McQuarrie. Hello, J.G. Hello. There we are. How are you all doing this week? Oh, we're all right. Getting through it. Apart from having to read a book really, really fast, and as we always do. <laughs> so, J.G., we would like you to tell us about your podcast, where we can find it, what you do, and all that going on. Sure. So, uh, well, I'm J.G. McQuarrie, and I am the co-host of the podcast Talking Who to You, a podcast dedicated to the Big Finish audio adventures of Doctor Who. So we cover um, all aspects of Big Finish. We're doing some of the legacy stuff from way back in time, and we're also covering some of the current stuff as well. So we're currently covering the third first Doctor box set, and we're going to be doing the Missy box set in the near future as well. Um, and we just ramble around all things Big Finish as wherever the fancy takes us. Oh, awesome. Fantastic. I just heard about the Missy Box set, so I'll be uh, looking forward to hearing about that. Because uh, even though, the, for some reason, even though the TV show will tend to abandon these characters, Big Finish doesn't, so they give them <clears throat> series all to themselves, which is really lovely. All right. So before we get to talking about the book, remember our Patreon page. You know where it is. Depending on the amount you give per month, you receive, among other possible goodies, a randomly chosen BBC book, not a Target book, since we know you have so many of them that even your local Goodwill won't take them off your hands anymore. <laughs> As a gift for supporting us, just to say thank you for being willing to help us stay on the virtual air. <clears throat> As usual, we'd like to thank our regular patrons, Bart Lammy, Rick Taylor, Toby Bengelsdorf, Jay Barry, and the Video Junk Air podcast. Thank you, guys. Thanks, y'all. We also have our Goodreads discussion group where you, you, the listener, can discuss upcoming books and previous podcasts. You can find us there at tinyurl.com forward slash Y7KMASPR. In fact, we expect you to. 
You are required by law. In fact, if you listen to this podcast, you have to go there. All right. International law. You can be brought before the Hague if you don't. Exactly. We continue now with the final Troughton story, and perhaps not the final second Doctor story, the novelization of The War Games. Without further ado, here are some fast facts. Doctor Who and the War Games, adapted by Malcolm Hopeful and the script he co-authored with Terrence Dix, aired from 4-1969-621-69, published by Target Books in September 1979. As of this recording in March of 2019, this title is currently on a print, but is available as an unabridged audiobook, 144 pages. <clears throat> Deep breath. Deep breath. Hard to do that all in one. Now, a couple facts about the story before we get into discussing it. The War Games is the second longest continuous story ever produced for Doctor Who. The first being the Daleks Master Plan, of course. Some people consider that to be the season-long trial of a Time Lord from the 80s, but there are only so many people, crazy people, you can listen to in one lifetime, so <laughs> we ignore them. The War Games was never intended to be this long, though. Malcolm Hulk was always going to be part of it. Uh, after having worked with David Ellis on the none-too-impressive story The Faceless Ones, which we remember, that one about the airplanes and the kids and all that going on, Hulk was asked back by his friend Terrence Dix, despite that story, to contribute to Troughton's penultimate story, a six-parter called The Impersonators, which sounds very much like it would have been like The uh, Chameleons. Mm -hmm. That would be followed by a four-part story written on by incoming producer Derek Sherwin that would say goodbye to the second Doctor and Jamie. While Zoe's fate was still in the air, since the producers were considering having Wendy Padbury stay on as Zoe with the new Doctor. All we know is that it would have been set partially on Earth to establish the new Doctor's exile there. And that's all I can tell you about that story, because it never got written. Both Hulk's story and Sherwin's ran into problems, and so the decision was made to do a mammoth ten-part story to see the second Doctor off. Hulk agreed to co-write this with Terrence Dix, and they completed all ten episodes within the three months before production was due to start. Now, I'd heard the way they did this was by having one of them write an episode with a cliffhanger, then passing it to the other to have him keep it going around Robin style, which sounds way too fun. It was probably not the way it was produced, but it sounds like it could have been fun. By the time they started on it, though, two major decisions had been made. Wendy Padbury had decided to leave at the same time as her co-stars, which meant this was a goodbye story to all of the regulars, and Terrence Sticks decided to introduce the Doctor's race to the Time Lords for the very first time. Although he did not appear in the regeneration sequence, if you could call it that, we'll talk about that too, mm -hmm. the new Doctor John Pertwee was announced just before episode 10 aired. This is the first of seven books that we will have for Malcolm Hulk who had novelized six of his own stories and one by another author. He was born in 1924. His first work in TV included the well-regarded Pathfinders in Space, which apparently you can get in the UK on DVD, but you can't get it here for love nor money, which really pisses me off. He was also an extremely active member of the Communist Party of Great Britain, to the extent that MI5 had him under surveillance, as reported in Doctor Who magazine. Even after resigning from the party in the 1950s, his politics remained extremely leftist, as we will see in almost all of his writing, including this book. Mm -hmm. He also became the friend and mentor of Terrence Dix, with whom he collaborated on Dix's first work for television, an adventure script called The Mauritius Penny. Am I pronouncing that correctly? Mm -hmm. Does everybody know how to pronounce that? Mauritius. I'm, I'm the only one who doesn't. You nailed it. 
Good, good. Before his far too early death at the age of 54 in 1979, he had also collaborated with Dix on the making of Doctor Who and wrote the posthumously published Industry Bible writing for television, which I believe is still being read by most people who aspire to write for TV in Britain. In other words, while this may be the first of his books for us, it would be the last he would write, published Mm. only a few months after his death. Mm. Now, before I get into this next bit, which is the deep weeds, I'm going to ask JG um, how much he knows about the season 6B theory, as it's called. Um, I know everything about the season six B yeah. yeah. There's there's nothing I don't know about it. I've even read the terrible, terrible Terence Dix books about it. So yeah. Oh my god, I could only get through half the way through one of those. Well, that's, that's still pretty impressive though. Yeah, yeah, it is. It is. Well then you'll help me fill in the blanks if there's anything that I'm missing here. Because I'm trying not to spoil it for my co panelists, but by the same token, there's certain things that have to be spoiled. You notice I did say the last Troughton story, but I didn't say the last second Doctor story. Okay. Two reasons for that. One, he's going to be back for the anniversary stories. He'll be back for the 10th anniversary and the uh, three Doctors. He'll be back for the 20th and the, uh, the five Doctors. And on top of that, he alone will return to co-star with another Doctor in a televised story later on, which is the only Robert Holmes novelization we will ever get to read because it's the only one he ever wrote. But until that second anniversary story, there was nothing to suggest that the last scene in the War Games was not the end for the second Doctor. In that story, however, five Doctors, the Doctor encounters some phantoms that have taken on the shape of Jamie and Zoe, and the way he knows they're phantoms is because he knows the Time Lords erased their memories before they sent them home. I repeat that. He knows they got sent home with their memories erased, before he himself has regenerated. Yeah. Do you see the problem? I feel like I'm missing something profound. Well, it is profound in that there's no way he could know, unless he hasn't regenerated yet. Mm -hmm. Because this is after the war games, but before his regeneration. Cut to the 80s. When Robert Holmes is asked to write a story featuring the second Doctor and Jamie, and Holmes reveals that he believes the Doctor didn't regenerate at the end of that story, that the Time Lords had a show trial in which they appeared to exile the second Doctor, but instead used him for decades of clandestine missions for them before they actually sent him to Earth. Hence, we do get the story called The Two Doctors, in which the Doctor and Jamie, who both look much older, because of course the actors are, not only know all about the Time Lords, they're on a mission for them, and on top of it all, they've just dropped Victoria off somewhere so that she can do some research on her own without being around. And all of this comes to what's known in fandom as the Season 6B theory, and... The proponents of it are Robert Holmes and, wouldn't you know it, Terrence Dix, who co-wrote the story. It basically comes down to, this is not the end for the second Doctor, and there have been plenty of uh, books and stories set in that gap between the War Games and the next book we'll be reading. Um, And in fact, if you look at that very last scene, you don't see the second Doctor regenerating. Mm And he's not, it's not called regenerating here. And then Terrence Dick's novelization of the next one, when he repeats that scene, he again does not call it regeneration. Wibbly wobbly, timey wimey. This is like when people try to come up with a pseudoscientific 
explanation of the difference between Genesis chapter one and Genesis chapter two and make it into <laughs> actual scientific events. The garden's created here and then the rest of the earth oh, is created there and God. whatnot. Except but no, let Terrence that one is a, yeah. I, I thought you meant Genesis of the Daleks. Uh, that also. Well, that also Why are requires, there so many differences between yeah, the ancient well, Hebrew are, poetry of Genesis 1 and Genesis of the Daleks? There has to be some explanation why they differ so much. Oh, that's true. Well, there's, yeah, well, come to think of it, that story also requires, yeah. JG, we'll have you back on for that one. How about that? I'll look forward to it. Okay. Now, we would normally read the uh, back cover. Um, and what we're going to do, JG, if you don't mind doing it, is read the original back cover. I assume you have a copy of the first edition. That... I'm, I'm holding the paper back in my hand. You do. So you've got the extra long back matter that my panelists have not seen because they got a redacted copy. And in, uh, a, moment, in a moment, they will know why. So if you wouldn't mind reading us for uh, reading us for that, if you wouldn't mind reading that for us. <laughs> it's very good champagne. It's great champagne. Ex excellent work there, everyone. <laughs> Certainly, I would be happy to read it. Thank you. Mud, barbed wire, the smell of death. The year was 1917, and the TARDIS had materialized on the Western Front during the First World War. Or had it, but very soon the Doctor finds himself pursued by the soldiers of ancient Rome. And then he and his companions were reliving the American Civil War of 1863. And was this really Earth, or was it just a mock-up created by the warlords, I wonder? As Doctor Who solves the mystery, he has to admit he is faced with an evil of such magnitude that he cannot combat it on his own. He has to call for the help of his own people, Time Lords. So, for the first time, it is revealed who is Doctor Who, a maverick Time Lord who borrowed the TARDIS without permission. By appealing to the Time Lords, he gives away his position in time and space. Thus comes about the trial of Doctor Who, although perhaps, thankfully, not the trial of a Time Lord. Oh, thank God for that. And now you know the plot. <laughs> the, the entire fucking plot. <laughs> You can see why I redacted it for you. There's nothing There's nothing hidden on that back cover. It doesn't even suggest the story. It bloody well tells the whole thing. Yeah. So there we are. So, JG, um, when was the first time you read this book? I read it, um, I guess I must have been a young teenager. As I said, I've got the paperback here. And uh, I notice it's um, very uncreased and the spine is unbroken. So I, I suggest that means I've read it once. And now that I've read it again, I think I have a relatively good idea of why. Um, so yeah, so I guess I guess I probably would have been about twelve or thirteen the first time I read this, something like that. Okay. Were you the type to read the back cover first and then have the whole thing spoiled for you? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> well, let me say that's slightly different. I was definitely somebody who read the back cover first. Um, I wasn't necessarily expecting the whole book to be spoiled for me, but it's not like this leaves anything to the imagination, and that may have been part of the issue I already had, that might be why I only ever read this once, is because, like, well, I mean, if you've read the back cover, you already know what's in the book. And if yeah. you've read the book, well, you could just read the back cover. That's true. Mm -hmm. That is true, definitely. Um, Don, what was your first impression of this, having um, gotten the redacted version? Not having the, the back to to go by, I like the pacing of it. It just kind of, it just grows and grows and grows. It continues. It just steamrolls. Mm -hmm. um, and like I was telling you earlier, since uh, the version that you sent us I had to kind of read in a text uh, in a text box 
instead of through the PDF like normal, I didn't have page numbers. <laughs> so I was just steamrolling through it myself, just reading and reading and reading. Um, so yeah, I, I really enjoyed this book a lot. Mm. So. so it had this relentless quality to it. Yeah, yeah, it just kept coming. And then mm-hmm. there, was, there was enough keeping me guessing mm-hmm. uh, and I didn't know why. Usually when you redact anything on the back, it's because we're getting something we've seen before. Right. Mm-hmm. So you're trying to keep the surprise from us. So um, I didn't know if like, like the usual suspects were going to show up, but they didn't. Right. But it's still, there was still a lot going on that kept me really invested and really uh, just helped me get brought into this world and really want to know what the hell was going on. Okay. And Allison? I was afraid they were going to be Yetis again. <laughs> so uh, the, I actually uh, texted. An understandable fear. I started, well, because previously when Tony has decided to protect us from the harshness of life by redacting the covers, it's been because it's a recur- the return of a recurring villain. So I thought about faking my own death to get out of it if it turned out to be Yetis. <laughs> well, the, the fun thing is I had to, uh, I started reading the, book way too late and I had to text Tony a few hours ago to tell him that the redaction was propagating every five pages so every so in every five page group the the third page had 25% missing did you block oh. out the Roman soldier on the front maybe mm, no I'm not no. sure something on the front was blocked out and then yeah. the oh yes and then the blurb to so every fifth page the top two thirds oh, is missing I'm so sorry <laughs> so if I'm a little that. sketchy on the first 15 oh. pages of the story it's because I was trying to overcome that oh, so wow. I had no idea this big reveal was coming it was actually okay. a very effective surprise I thought the whole thing was going to be historical historical about yeah. the Great War, which I was actually pleased with because we haven't had a historical in a dozen stories. It no. feels like a more spin all sci-fi. And we won't get another for a very long time. So I thought the whole thing would be a historical Ooh. about the Great War, and then there would I did not anticipate that there would be uh, the most modern Who type reveal that we've seen so far yes. in these books of, the, of this much grander story and structure. So hmm. it, it definitely worked to redact it. I didn't see it coming. Excellent. I'm glad to hear that. So where do we start? Because I think JG and I could probably do a whole hour alone on how different this is from the 10-part version that appeared on screen. I just want to hear you two mm-hmm. complain about Terrence Dix for an hour and a half. <laughs> <laughs> Which we could always do. Hmm. Where should we start? Well, can I? Do you mind if I say something? Absolutely. One of the things, it's really interesting to hear the reactions of people who, who don't know what's coming. That's, it's such an unusual thing these days to have sort of anybody have input into this, that they don't know the story backwards and forwards. They don't know what the big reveal was going to be. So it's really kind of cool to have like two people who are kind of fresh and new to this. Um, but secondly, I have to admit kind of my own prejudice here, because for me, uh, the War Games, uh, the TV version, not the novelization, uh, is like a top five story of all time for me. It's like Warrior's Gate, Caves of Androzani, Ghostlight, and then this. That's how highly I regard the original. So I just want to sort of make you aware going in that I'm going to be quite harsh uh, as far as my criticisms of this book go. <laughs> really? But it's only because it's only because I hold the original in such high esteem. So um, yeah. That's that's going to be a thing. I think I'm just the opposite. I only think that episodes nine and ten are worth watching, <laughs> and so getting this, where everything is just like compressed, compressed. into this massively dense plot, I'm like, whoa, okay, this this I could reread. Whereas I fell asleep rewatching every single episode of all ten 
of war games this time around, and usually I can, you know, stay awake for at least two. And why would you have failed this podcast? I have failed this podcast. I'm afraid. <laughs> um, I was watching them late at night. That's one problem. And you should never watch Doctor Who in bed because that just makes your dreams do really weird things. <laughs> <laughs> oh my god. Um, hmm. So you hold this in high regard, but not the book. I take indeed. Okay. I don't. I, I don't think it's a bad book, but it. But compared to the original, yeah, not so much. Hmm. What do you feel is missing out of this book that was in the original? I mean, apart from the obvious Lots. things that are missing. <laughs> Six episodes. Yes. Um, yeah, no, I think that the. Um, I think the novel is comparatively well constructed, and I, I think it's probably also a next to impossible task to try and take a ten-episode story like the War Games and contract it down to what is it, one hundred and forty-three pages in the original. That's that's next to impossible, and I think a lot of the minutiae kind of get lost in that. I think Malcolm Hulk is very good at getting kind of the pacing of it, but I think what's missing is a lot of the character works. I felt a lot of the characters here are really kind of flat. And, and just described rather than existing. There's one or two exceptions to that, but I think the majority of them kind of come across as very flat. And that's what I feel is missing. It's, it, it's, it's, it's a very functional book, but it doesn't have the same kind of, yeah, it doesn't have all the same grubby little details that you get in the, in the sort of original. And, and that is something that really hurt this novelization in, in my eyes. By characters, and I assume you mean uh, Carstairs, Lady Jennifer, those guys. Yeah, exactly. And I think particularly kind of like the, I don't know what you want to call them, the higher beings, if you will, the Time Lords, the Warlords, the Security Chief, all those characters come across a wee bit flat. I actually think Lady Jennifer comes across not that badly, although unfortunately she's written out in the same kind of extremely dismissive way as she is in the original. But there's um, a sense that a lot of the the kind of, yeah, the, the, the Time Lords, the Warlords, all those guys, they, they just don't, it just didn't have any impact to me. So although I appreciate the significance of what was happening when they are introduced, I know I'm getting ahead of myself a wee bit here, but when they're introduced, I understand the significance of it, but it doesn't, I don't know, they just, they don't feel like real characters that came off the page to me. Hmm, okay. How do you all feel about that? Do you feel the same way about? Yeah, I, yeah. I agree. Mm -hmm. uh, initially starting reading it, I was suffering from the thing I usually do of too many characters introduced. There's not enough description. You're not getting characterization. Mm -hmm. It's hard to distinguish them. Yeah. There were, there were a lot of B, B parts, I guess, mm -hmm. to keep track of. That is true. And without any, without any like major defining parts, it's like, well, this character could be interchangeable with any other one. That's the point. And there are actually more of them mm -hmm. in the book than there are on screen, because instead of giving everything to extras, Hulk actually um, names some of them and tells us where they're from, and they get a line of dialogue, like the uh, New York soldier who yeah. talks in that ridiculous dialect when they're in the chateau. Uh, how about you, Allison? Yeah, very focused on plot mechanics. Like Rube Goldberg-esque in a good way mm. that, I, that I thought worked together well, but yeah, I'm a, much flatter characterization than we've seen even from Tarek's sticks recently. Oh, wow. Okay. Um, <sighs> but, but, I may but, be in a minority of one here. But remember but that I actually like some of the things that Terrence Sticks did with Jamie and Zoe more than that what he had true. done with previous characters. That is true. That is true. <clears throat> How do we feel about the way the regulars were handled? 
Currently, we're speechless. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> struck dumb by the question. I think they get better as they go on. I think once we get, especially to the last couple of chapters, I think you start to get a sense that Zoe and Jamie, and particularly Triton's Doctor, start to come into focus a little bit in a way that I just don't think that they do early on. And I know um, we talked about Jamie quite a lot the last time I was on this podcast and you're kind enough to let me help cover the uh, Highlanders. But um, it takes Jamie a long time. And just saying Sassanach every so often is not characterization. It's just, that's just a word. And it takes them a long time. They do get there. And like eventually we get a, a sense of the characters, I think, as they exist uh, in, in the broadcast episode. But it, it, it feels like it takes a long time to get there. Yeah. And, and Zoe is quite annoying in this. And that's really weird because I love Zoe. Ooh, really? Okay. I well, thought the direction the book was going in was going to be that the regulars were just strictly point of view characters for us sort of beholding the horrors and wastes of war. And it was mm -hmm. going to be almost entirely historical, political commentary on the horror and waste mm -hmm. of the war. So I was fine at first with Zoe and Jamie being pretty flat in this compared to what we've seen recently because they're just there for to be comparatively modern for us to see it through, even though Jamie's from uh, quite a ways before this. He's seen mm -hmm. a lot now. Yeah, that's true. Don't. It, there was that bit in the beginning about the doctor talking about not interfering, and so in some ways that seemed to kind of take over a little bit. Like mm. they're they're since they don't quite understand what's going on, they know something is up. They're they know something is not quite right. Mm -hmm. They're still trying to figure it out. They're still kind of there's a lot of mystery <laughs> to be solved. So. Yes. So that, I feel like, does kind of affect them taking any kind of brash action or really just, like, doing anything because they're trying to be like, well, what is going on here? Yeah, exactly. Who are we dealing with? What, hmm. what kind of, what, what, do we, what do we need to do? Well, we need to gather information first. Okay. And a lot of what they're doing is just surviving. I mean, they're being tossed around between... Yes. One camp that thinks they're spies for the Germans, and another camp that thinks they're spies for the Brits, and then there's slightly like, less of that in this version, by the way. Thank there's God. more in the televised. Oh yeah, oh so much more. Oh, yeah, oh, I have to do ten episodes somehow. That seemed a wise thing to cut out because mm. I I appreciate a well built mm -hmm. sense of disorientation. So the first time they drive through the mist in there, now we know in some Roman war, but um, talk about how we clean the air is and how different the the terrain is. They don't know what's going on. I wondered, well, what's going on? As they figure out what's going on, that was very interesting. But mm -hmm. once they understand that they're in this like, concentric circle, different eras and different places, and they're on a different planet, time to move on more quickly than actually happens. Oh, okay. I could see that. I could see that. Um, there's a lot of there's a lot of resistance fighters running around finding one another. But once we understand the basic outline of the situation, this mm -hmm. kind of just more running up and down corridors. Oh, there were fewer actual corridors in That's, here. Well, if you watch the 10-parter, there's a lot more. Even when we get to the Doctor's home planet, that... Hey, that no, gets, hey, no. <laughs> that gets those, are, those are some spectacular pop art corridors. Those are some of the best corridors of Titan's entire run. <laughs> I was thinking less about the corridors and more about the water feature. Um, you know, they're having to go across those tiles, and it's in water that has obvious dry ice in it. And it's like... The hell? Where are but they? That, that's that's fine. Like the Time Lords can take people from anywhere. So clearly they've got Frank Lloyd Wright to design Gallifrey. I don't have a problem with that. <laughs> there you go. Oh, yeah. That's a, a bit drab actually. color scheme, but good writing. Well, well, it is black and nice white. <laughs> They'll get much more colorful later, but 
then everything else goes drab. Um, well, what specifically, uh, well, let's take a character by character. Let's go with Zoe first. Um, cause I want to go get back to JG's calling her annoying because, uh, that's interesting. What specifically annoyed you about her? She feels like a very passive character in this. There's, she does a lot of um, kind of just trailing around the place. And the odd moments that she gets where she gets to be a little bit more proactive or whatever kind of get sort of flattened out somehow. I, it's, it's literally laying down. I'm thin. I'll kind of, fall out right <laughs> under this. Under this. <laughs> yeah. In the mud, though. Yeah. Yeah, I don't know. I I just I love Wembry Pebbery and Zoe so much. They're such great sort of additions to the Doctor Who universe. And there's just something about the way that Zoe feels. Yeah, I think she has a very passive voice in this. And it's in a way that even like, I, I can be quite critical of Jamie's characterization here as well. But mm -hmm. but at least he has more time that he spends with the Doctor. So he gets to do a bit more and he gets captured and blah, 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 whatever. Zoe's just sort of there, and that annoys me intensely because she's a much more proactive character. She gets to do, certainly gets to do more in the in the broadcast version, and I think that's what it is. It's not necessarily that her specific individual characterization is is annoying. She's not asking dumb questions or tripping over and twisting her ankle, but she, at the same time, she just doesn't have the same agency, and I think that's what sort of really annoyed me about her characterization. I can here. see that. Usually yeah, she has more of an opportunity to be ingenious come up with interesting solutions that are consistent with her character, that right. she would figure that out. True. And she does yeah. a little here, but just at the very end. Yeah, and I could see that too, especially given that in the broadcast version is her who brings everybody together, the uh, resistance leaders, because of her uh, memory. But then, of course, she has to <laughs> forget what who Arturo Villa is, is, even though she's seen his photograph, but yeah. yeah. <laughs> I, yeah, but Alison's right. Alison's right. She, she, you said that she comes into, she snaps into focus at the end, and that's right. Where they do the whole thing with the force field, and she has to try and get under it for them yeah. to escape. And that's what I meant earlier on about the characters coming into focus at the end of the book. They do finally get there, but it takes them such a long time to do it. And um, so, no, you're you're 100 right about that. Yeah, and in fact, that scene with the force field at the end is not in the broadcast version. Indeed. Um, yeah, in fact, uh, it had been cut. It's one of the things that had been cut from the, the script, and Hulk decided, well, let's put this back in, um, which is interesting because usually he's very good at pruning things. Some of the stuff he adds, though, I think adds to their characters to some degree. But I think you may be right. When we uh, when the Doctor's trying to explain World War One to them, <laughs> her response is, I don't understand. My clothes are filthy, it's wet, it's uncomfortable, and I don't know what you're talking about. I was irritated. <laughs> oh, fuck off, Zoe. <laughs> <laughs> but she's never heard of any of these conflicts yeah. at all. Or the United States, yeah. She yeah. seemed too ignorant. Maybe, but, and I think I, I could see that. I'll, I'll concede that point, that the way Hulk has pro uh, produced her, she's not the know-it-all that she usually is. She would know some of this stuff. She'd be able to figure out the uh, side rats faster than the doctor would, for that matter. So yeah, I could see that. Not that That's kind a pity. Of, kind of a nice dark switch for Jamie in here, where in an early scene, he wants to interrogate someone and makes a sort of dark statement about, oh, just give me yes. a few minutes alone with him. I'll get the information yes. out of him. And then he's the one actually bolted to a chair later on. That was yes. actually a nice character development that he, 
and, and he does not play the tough guy in that scene very effectively. He's, no. He is actually, yeah, he's actually suffering quite a bit. And that mm -hmm. was an interesting, it's darker than we've seen in previous books. There's also the doctor's response to him when he, when he tries to do that. He says, no, Jamie, we don't, we don't do that we sort of thing. Which Jamie like, should know by now. He though. should know. He's been with them for long enough. I mean, Christ, he's been yeah. with the Trouton Doctor except for one story. Yeah. Oh, well. <laughs> this book too overall was really kind of uh, kind of gory or kind of gruesome, I guess. There's lots of killing, lots of death, lots of shooting people at point blank range and just <laughs> having them fall over dead. Yeah, uh, which we we do well, get do. we do get things like that, but there seem to be a lot more of it happening here. Mm -hmm. Well, imagine having to pad out ten episodes. And having that to do it with, yeah, yeah, there's there's a bit more of it. Yeah. So where do we go to file our official complaint about linguistic crimes against regional accents? Oh no! Is there like a <laughs> well, <laughs> JG, you probably know about that. I, I have a feeling that most of the crimes are committed against your homeland. So. Oh, laddie. Oh, laddie. <laughs> the American Civil War is pretty egregious as well. Well, that is true. As is well, the. I, I, I know it's never easy to, to sort of render accents on the page. That's always going to be a struggle. And I think it's really interesting that um, when um, we get translations, especially early on in the book, he kind of loses, stops doing it as the book goes on. But early on in the book, whenever somebody says something in a foreign language or not English language, the translation is in brackets afterwards. There's yeah. no attempt to try and explain this away. Of course, we're a long way from sort of telepathic circuits and, and TARDIS translations and Time Lord gifts and all that kind of stuff. Mm -hmm. But it's really interesting that, a, that he chooses that as a device. And that's quite effective because then you get the original language and then the English translation next to it. So that's okay. But as soon as we start to get people written on the page like this, it all goes terribly, terribly wrong. <coughs> so is is the are the episodes like that also? Yeah. Okay. <laughs> it's a small, after all. It's a very thin line from Journey's End to sort of Alo Alo, and the accents <laughs> just wander in between the two without any kind of real discipline. Yeah, well, they're still doing their, you know, Rada best accents, but there we again, are. At, at the time, Rada wasn't particularly good at uh, rendering people with Eng with American accents too well. For example, the character who's only known on the page as the Negro, the Negro. And he, is like particularly the, like, bad. Like new he says it like eight to 12 know, times. I it's know. 1979. I know. <laughs> well, bear in mind, 1979 in the UK, you still have the... Uh, Black and white. Oh, what was it called? The black and white minstrel show. Yeah, that's the one. Yeah. Yeah, it was still on the air by that point. He's a TV writer. He's sophisticated. He, kno <laughs> he knows better. He really but the thing is, the thing is, earlier on in the book, he has um, a scene which is definitely one which is uh, unique to the book, where there are two characters, Willy Muller from Berlin and and George Brown from London, um, and it's a little scene about two people who are both deserted. Uh, from their respective armies and have become friends. And it's like it's less than a page long, but he makes a real kind of effort to make it clear that it's possible for a friendship to exist between those two kind of otherwise implacable enemies. And they're just they're just there to. I think they're watching the ambulance disappear as it goes through the time mist. Yeah. And so on one sort of angle, um, Mac Hulk is obviously 
sort of very strongly invested in the idea that sort of these enemies can become friends and, and sort of mutually help each other. But yeah, yeah. On the other hand, you have like these just, just such clumsy kind of characterization of, of um, you know African American characters or, or Mexican characters or whatever. And there seems to be absolutely no lineup between the two approaches whatsoever. No, no, no. Well, that's what I'm saying. The small, small world, after all, the idea that everyone can live together in friendship in their two to three hundred year old national costumes and <laughs> the, the bad impressions of their accents. Oh, it yeah. sort of weirdly childlike, streamlined. Yeah, it is. And, and, and can I also complain about the language in the book? Because I don't know about the German, but the one line in French that they had is just awful. It should not read that way. It's not son on derrière. It's not derrière. It's <laughs> Monsieur. It should be Monsieur Lieutenant. I'm trying to get my accent there. They both saw of a son the derrière du château, and it's like, oh my god, that's basic French grammar. What the hell? But here's where I thought this was going. Uh-huh. I thought that they were all. I thought that it was going to be similar to the Mandarin. The Mandarin, the toy maker, right? Mm-hmm. Wherein I thought, where he was not actually, a, not actually a Chinese character, but he was sort of donning this, what he yes. thought was a very powerful persona to mm-hmm. play the game. Um, I, I'm sorry, I just butchered my summary of that plot. No, no. But I thought that these were going to be humans who had been programmed to believe they were from these different oh. eras and these different places. But maybe they were all from like the year twenty three hundred or so. That's interesting. And that they had been badly programmed mm. with weirdly streamlined, homogenized accents. <laughs> and that they that, were all anachronistic. And they were all That is a brilliant theory. Stereotypical <laughs> yeah. fashions. That I was really disappointed when, when they turned out to out. actually be from these places and have experienced these wars. Yeah, I could see that. That is a brilliant theory. I love yeah. that idea. Especially since... They're all too modern. Well, we also know how many people got lost in World War One, and it was a huge number, but in those other wars, to have been participating in how long this experiment was going on with the uh, the warlords, that you'd have to have that loss of people for those wars as well. And yeah, nothing nothing approaches the death toll of World War One. <laughs> Just one last thing in the language. I noticed that uh, Mac Hulk didn't bother to try and get Latin right for the for the Roman characters who get a couple of lies, presumably because Latin is much much harder to research than cod French or cod German. And even as even as they're watching that square elephant disappear, not a hint of a Latin word is to be found. <laughs> That's hilarious. Yeah. And so I'm betting that the German is just as bad. Oh, God, yes, it's terrible. (laughs) The little bits I was picking up on, yeah. It's not good German. Okay, so maybe they are from the year 2300. Or, yeah, something's going on. Certainly that could have been avoided. Well, come to think of it. I was just thinking this, JG. Um, If Hulk was even aware of the TV show at that point, they would have done the whole line of the Time Lord gift thing. They would have known that the TARDIS is... If not the TARDIS translating, then at least the Doctor's presence is helping with translation. But the Doctor doesn't know French either, which is Well, weird. would they, though? I thought the first reference to that was Mask of Mandragora. Yeah, that would have been, what, 77? Yeah. Well, yeah, I suppose in terms of times of writing, I suppose that's true, but not when this uh, was actually originally written. Well, maybe he's... 
Let's be generous and say that he is uh, remaining authentic to the continuity as it existed in 1969, rather than retroactively fitting his own continuity onto a story that he was then novelizing 10 years later. Is that a generous interpretation? (laughs) Yeah, I'd say so. I mean, it's kind of like we can ding him for calling him Doctor Who, even though he only does it once. But at least he's not doing what Ian Martyr was doing in... um, um, oh, oh the story that was the actually in French. That. Really? Yeah. Oh, Reign of Terror. Yeah, Reign of Terror, where there are constant references to his two hearts and his Gallifrey and biology and all that. It's, it's so like, egregious. It has to be an editorial. Yeah. yeah. And I and I forgot to ask Nigel Robinson about that. But I don't think Nigel was overseeing that book. So. What have you done? You ask him. I know. Well, I did explain ask him. yourself. Well, you remember I did ask him about that slap that you uh. didn't like. Uh, when Jamie slaps, who who's Jamie slap? He slaps. Um, Victoria, I thought. No, no, it's Polly. Oh, and Underwater yeah, Menace. Yeah. yeah, because he wrote that book, and there's no evidence of a slap. And I'm paraphrasing, but she says something like, "Thanks, I needed that." <laughs> yes, exactly. It's the fact that it was it was portrayed as a terrific thing for him to do that I was complaining about. Ah, uh, yeah, that's true. <laughs> she just needed it. She just needed it. Oh, what else? Are there other things in here that are modernized between when the episode aired and when the novelization came out? I am not spotting a lot. Uh, How about you, JG? Did you see anything that uh, he updated with, you know... Sort of information that had become canon in the intervening 10 years? Yeah. Because I'm not... No, he's he's surprisingly good at keeping everything kind of 1969 sort of uh, relevant. Like, for example, Gallifrey isn't name-checked, and that's the big one. When we get to everything is always to the planet of the Time Lords, he never once comes across and uses the name Gallifrey, especially by 1979. I mean, you can get away from the bloody thing. So it was definitely around, um, but he makes no effort to try and insert that. Um, So there's not a lot of kind of retroactive continuity in this. Um, And I think that's probably to the book's benefit it as well. I, I don't think that this would be improved in any way by dropping in little references like that. I'm, I'm quite happy that he manages to keep it sort of more or less as it was in transmission, despite many other problems I have with the book. I think that was absolutely the right call. Mm-hmm. Well, one of those additions that he does make is specifically to um, I, I think it's a good character building moment when they're trying to get into the safe and the doctor almost outs himself to Jamie. He almost tells him who he is and where he's from. And that's one of the best scenes of characterization of Jamie we have in the book. Where yeah. It's like, all this time, will that. you finally tell me who you are? Yes. Haven't I earned that? I adore that moment. And it's not, a, it's not on screen at all. Mm. Because they're all wrapped up in that stupid safe by that point. But You see, I think that's... I think that's a great character moment, but I don't think of that as being kind of retroactive continuity. He's just adding to, he's just adding a scene which could have been expanded in the broadcast version, but he's not actually inserting any kind of future thing. It's just the Doctor is finally ready to break down, but then, of course, something gets in the way and, and we have that reveal held back until the end of the novel. But that doesn't feel like it's a retcon in any way. No, it isn't. And I, I, I'm sorry if it made it sound like I was characterizing it as such. It's actually just a moment that I really like, especially since yeah. it puts some nice foreshadowing in this book in the story that it didn't really have before. Because if you're watching the 10-parter and you don't know that it's going to end with big reveal... There's nothing to let you know that the Doctor's race is going to be part of it until, oh God, when is the first mention? 
I had no idea until they walked on page. Oh, really? Yeah, oh, because I, they had the redacted. Version. I had no idea it was. No. Yeah, because uh, there's one of the warlord scientists says something about the war chief's race, and he says the time lords. I think that's episode six. I'm almost yeah, but it's it's very offhanded. It's just a very passing moment. It's there's no significance laid on it at all. There's no way you know that it has any connection to the Doctor at all until yeah. you see that moment of recognition between the War Chief and the Doctor. Well, it's, I will say, it, for a person who's seen a lot of the modern period, the whole thing, I thought, well, this is going to turn out to be the Master or something. <laughs> yeah. Well, this, that, 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 that he will turn out to be a Time Lord. I did not see them you know, going home for trial. I thought right. maybe that one character will be a Time Lord. But well, not, I didn't, like I say, expect the grand reveal towards the end. We probably should talk about the War Chief, shouldn't we? Mm-hmm. Because, Christ Almighty, this story, <laughs> I think this may be the start of almost all Doctor Who controversies, because there's so <laughs> many things that come up in this that you've got sides taken, and one of them is whether or not the War Chief is indeed the Master. He's not. Moving on. <laughs> Okay, so JG is definitely in the anti-cab, and so am I. Well, what's your basis for that? Well, it's just so clearly bollocks. <laughs> <laughs> There's no character connection between them whatsoever. It's just like some other character, and there is a certain breed of Doctor Who fan that insists that absolutely everything must always line up, and there must always be continuity references, and there can never be anything that can just exist in isolation already. And, you know, like, that's, that's all it is. It's just so clearly bollocks. And, and that's all I have to say on this topic. That, I was thinking, what evil Time Lord can I name? And there's really only one. Yeah, so, that's true. I wasn't let's, building a case, so. That's true. <laughs> let's, let's, let's just, um, <laughs> you know, we're, we're recording this in 2019 now. So let's put forward a different theory. I don't think it's the Master. I think it's the Rani. Really? Sure, oh, it's the Rani. The Rani's evil. She's always trying to control people. Look what she was doing their very first adventure in the Mark of the Rani. She's taking people, she's experimenting on them, she's using them, and then just discarding them as if they're nothing. That's exactly um, what the plan is here. It's clearly the Rani. I'm overwhelmed. And at this point, we have seen the monk. And we have seen the monk. And this is the sort of thing the monk yeah. would do. Well, that too. It could be the and monk. It has a little probably. vicious for the monk. Actually. It is too vicious. For, it's not too vicious for the Rani, though. We, ha we haven't met the Rani yet. But knowing now that Time Lords can indeed gender swap, yeah. it could very well be that the Ronnie started life as a man or as a woman and went to man and again and again. Wasn't he also killed? Well, here's, well, <laughs> here's ever, the really. thing. On screen and in the book, we hear the warlord, uh, war, uh, yeah, the main warlord, say, take the carcass away. We never see where that body goes. We yeah. know from this book he has a TARDIS. It may indeed be on their planet. So it could very well be that they dumped his body somewhere. He had a uh, regeneration off where it was nice and private, then ran off to his or her TARDIS and went on, went on about things. In fact, I think that is the theory behind the people who do think it's the Master. I think that's exactly what they say about it, isn't it, JG? It, it is, but they're wrong. <laughs> <laughs> but no. But at this point, anything goes on, right? I that's mean, true. So. That's true. And that, that like would be a major of, one. If we're putting in these stock in like authorial intent, yeah. both the episode and, well, I don't know what happened between when it aired and then when this was adapted. Well, the, the thing that gets me, the thing that I think makes it clear that it's not, is that 
of the people who believe in the season 6B theory think that they would also believe in the two of them being the same character. Terrence Dix hasn't done anything with that, to my knowledge. And Robert Holmes never said a word about it. And he's the one who created the Masters. So, yeah, we, you, the three of us <laughs> are going to see the Master in about uh, four books, actually. So, soon. Okay. yeah, very soon. So we'll be able to judge by then whether or not we think it's the same one. I personally don't think it is. I think that that's just a time lord that we saw, never saw before. We'll never see again. I'm perfectly fine with that. Yeah. Time lords can die. It's fine. Now I'm afraid the master is going to first appear controlling the Yeti, and I'm afraid I'm going to have to call in <laughs> for that book. I won't be available. Well, here's the thing. You've I... been seriously traumatized by the Yeti, I haven't have you? weird dreams. It's really quite tragic. She really does. <laughs> and the, the, well, I can honestly tell you. I actually didn't mind them. It's just they came back way too soon relative well, to their level of interest. I will tell you this. They do appear together in the same story, but they are not <laughs> going to be anything to do with one another and you won't see them for another, in relative time, 13 years. It's all very cold comfort. <laughs> all right. Oh, well, that's fine. No, it's <sighs> nice that it's we're reading in an era when everything doesn't have to be a constant continuity, Gorian not, where yes. one plot line goes back in time to consume a different one and everything has to be like an endless jigsaw puzzle of interlocking parts. Yes, like the, unlike the era we're about fresh. to enter. Fresh and new and Yeah. We're about to enter into that jigsaw puzzle very soon, in fact. Uh, the beginnings of it. The beginnings of it. Though, to be, to be fair, to be fair, we haven't seen the moment that causes that to be a problem yet. Thank God. So, so when, this is going to be a broader question yeah. for the experts, when will we go in the stories in terms of initial broadcast era from this era of disposable serial entertainment where there's not so much continuity um, and there's an assumption that once the episodes air they just won't be seen again mm -hmm. to more sort of the, the modern nerddom wherein there is more keeping track of right. wherein there's an expectation that there are fans who are paying attention to continuity okay. errors. I'm going to let JG feel that one first because I had my own theory it about it. like 80s or like, well, <laughs> well, I would say 1980. I think it's probably around that period. And it's because that's roughly when home video becomes viable. Mm -hmm. It's not it's not an exact date, so you yeah. can you can vary a bit. And certainly that's also around the time that John Nathan Turner arrives in the program as well. And he is very interested and invested in that idea of continuity and, and the show's own history. And those two things happen sort of more or less simultaneously so the rise of home video making the idea of watching something again and again something which is actually achievable something which is viable and then you also have a producer of the show who's very sort of locked into exploring that continuity i know terence dix very famously said that as far as he was concerned continuity was just whatever he could remember when he was writing <laughs> a story and you know that comes across that's very clear that, that was his approach to things but as you said it, it does kind of mean that you don't have that whole guardian knot of continuity like one of the things about the war games that i really love both in the novel and in the broadcast version is the fact that it it has this kind of momentum that drives it forward to the arrival of the time lords and it's 
it's right. really a big momentous moment but it's that's all it is it's not linked into past stories it's not going to be the continuity referencing about the first doctor when he ran away other than the fact that we know the doctor sort of euphemistically borrowed his tardis that's all it is but as we go through the 70s that kind of becomes more and more kind of part of the show and we visit gallifrey more often etc cetera, etc cetera. but i would say sort of like 80 1980 is roughly when i think that kind of that sort of professional fandom started to arrive now see i would probably date it further back but you made an interesting distinction there when you said that's when the producers start paying attention to it a lot more whereas i would say the war games is kind of the start of it because in the very next season you can't get through a story without a mention of the time lords or the fact that the doctor is exiled or the fact that he's trying to either repair the tardis which is not wrong with it or try to get those blocks on his memory lifted off but definitely the producers in uh tom baker's era were talking to fans and saying you know um what do you know about this etc 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 and it, it really does call us the 80s where it just turns into a i hate to say this a continuity slag fest it's just ugh. Every single damn story has to refer to either a story before it, or five stories before it, or 15 years before it, or, and then you get Attack of the Cybermen that tries to throw the whole kitchen sink in there, and it's just, I, I yeah. Sorry, not a big fan of the 80s. I love the actress from that era, the stories, not so much. <laughs> and yet you co you cover that opinion so well. Um, I, have, I have a question for the three of you, because you guys have been um, doing these reviews for a while now, I think it's fair to say. Um, and this, uh, this particular uh, novelization obviously is written by one of the two people who wrote the broadcast version. So uh, this is by Malcolm Hulk, and the original was by Malcolm Hulk and Terrence Dix. So given your knowledge, how do you think the other author of the script might have novelized that. How do you think Terence Dix would have handled this? Oh, that's interesting. Hmm. I'm going to let you two feel this first since you've read three Dicks in a row recently. Do you think it would have been all that different? or I think it would be pretty similar. Mm -hmm. I feel like the way that the last couple of books have gone, his writing style is pretty, pretty on par with this one. Ooh. I think he would have had a little bit more characterization for the new characters who are just in this story, but by a little more, I mean five sentences each. I mean a very, <laughs> a very. Little. Oh, okay. Well, I always got the sense of Dick's padding things out. Whereas here, you definitely get the sense that things are being compressed, but yeah. that's the number of episodes mm -hmm. um, rather than the, I guess. Um, yeah, a little more characterization, but not that. Different, yeah, not too different. This I... is very efficient, for better and for worse. Yeah, I agree. I think that Dix wouldn't necessarily have been that efficient. And he wouldn't have added the stuff that we've just been talking about, like the foreshadowing conversation with Jamie or uh, some of the other things I like so much, such as cutting things that you simply do not need to see because they can be reported in a line or two, like uh, Zoe's interrogation, which I think takes up something like two minutes of an episode and then when we get it on screen, she's saying, oh, yeah, I was interrogated. They showed me some pictures. And that's the important information we need, that she remembers what they look like. But also it's supposed to be entertainment, not a police report. So it's well, okay yeah. to have more. <laughs> Sorry, I offended the host. But okay, I'll stop talking now. No, 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 no. Well, I was also wondering if Dix would have put in all of the uh, more pro-feminist stuff. Because 
I hopes. couldn't figure out if it was actually feminist material or him making fun of feminist material, and I went back and forth. I think he's trying, but... I think he's trying, too, and I think he's doing better at it than Dix would have done. Because you have those exchanges. Uh, there are two specific ones. One in which um, it's just before they go back to the War Lord's headquarters, and they say, no, 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 you can't come along. She says, we have to take the battle into the enemy's camp. And the sergeant says, I admire your courage, man, but ladies don't fight. Why not? I believe in votes for women, so why shouldn't we fight if necessary? Oh, and he can't think of a good reason. Well, he actually says, because you're a nurse, and we need it. And that happens to be true. But isn't there an implication that he's relieved he could think of a good reason? Like, oh, we need... Nursing, that's it. Yeah. Nursing, yes. And, and yet that is something that she can do. But that um, that bit about her being a woman, I don't remember that being in the televised version. Okay, so this is me probably reaching a lot. But by 1979, Phyllis Schlafly is a national figure in the U.S. Oh, God. And Phyllis Schlafly, of course, made her name traveling the country opposing the ERA oh, of the Equal Rights Amendment, traveling the company, country telling women they should stay home. She was a woman with a, a bachelor's degree, a master's degree, and a JD telling women they were seeking higher education in too great a number. <laughs> so I actually thought the part about uh, Lady Jennifer saying, well, women's places in the home. I mean, unless, of course, there's a war on. <laughs> I know it's almost certainly not about Phyllis Schlafly. Right. That's kind of a jab at the, the 70s as an it era of the sort of professionally anti-feminist woman who travels around telling women to not do things the way she does. Them. I think Hulk probably would have been aware of that. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, it, it does seem a bit. He may also be making. I notice he does make fun of the whole British stiff upper lip aristocratic. Yes, we're brave under any circumstances. He even has the doctor uh, remark on it at one point. It's like, yeah, that wasn't in the original. But I can see Hulk looking at that as a good, card-carrying socialist and saying, yeah, <laughs> these people are ridiculous, and yet there's something admirable about their ridiculousness. Yeah. Hmm. I think that would be the biggest difference, because you can definitely see some of his socialist leanings coming through in the text, and Dix would not have that. Well, especially there's one line where, um, I think it's Lady Jennifer again, um, and uh, she says, uh, she, she's told that she can't understand something. And she says, she bridles uh, because I'm a woman. No, no because human. I'm human. <laughs> that's the reason. And that's, that's a really, that's definitely a Hulk thing because there's no way Terrence Sticks would have written something like that. And I, I do really appreciate those, those uh, little moments that he slips in. Mm-hmm. Terrence Sticks always like, gives with one hand and takes with the other, it feels like. With <laughs> like most of the Dixon are alive. He might have had, I don't know, I just he might have had a moment like that, but it would be offset by something horrible five pages later. No, there but is. You, you, you wouldn't have had a, a similar scene with, uh, uh, I mean, like, uh, there's a line I think that Carstairs has uh, about, you know, we're, we're English, we like tea, and we play cricket. And he is absolutely taking the piss. Yeah. You know, yes. he, that's that's yeah, what he's doing. I was hoping so. <laughs> you know, that, that's not in the broadcast version. And again, there is no way that Terrence Dix would have written a line like that. So you do get these little sly inclusions. Yeah. Uh, whereas I, I also think um, one of the things that makes, especially the early part of this book, quite successful is um, you can tell that Mac Hulk knows what he's talking about when he starts to describe kind of the horror of the trenches or whatever. I don't think Terrence Dix would really have nailed that. I think he would have placed the emphasis more on the kind of 
um, the fact that there's a, a you know a, a discontinuity going on or something's out of place or there's a disturbance rather than on kind of like how unpleasant the trenches were or how many people got chewed up in in, in the war or whatever and that emphasis that feels very much something I think that that Mac Hulk would add rather than rather than Dick's. I agree, especially since uh, Hulk tended to take the uh, educational remit of the program a lot more um, seriously than yes, Nick yes. ever did. Yeah, and you yeah. can see it too, that mm-hmm. explanation of World War One, the Civil War, especially, I love that when he does say, yeah, it's about slavery, it's not about states' rights, the way the fucking alt-right put these days. Um, and, it's, and some other things, especially there are a few one-offs, and I wish I'd made note of them. So do you think he was trying to select wars he thought of all as feudal wars? Possibly. Because I thought it was very interesting he doesn't mention World War II. And no. Was, there's no plot reason why he can't. Hmm. Well, there might be. Well, but he wouldn't But he wouldn't consider the 1936 Spanish War, I mean, the Civil War to be a feudal war, would he? No, no. I, well, I, I would think he would consider that to be a noble war. Well, Hulk may have some very interesting views on the Spanish Civil War, because if you read George Orwell's book about that war, because he actually fought in it, um, that's a very important war for the socialists, but it's very important in that they realize that... Um, the possibility of infighting amongst themselves was even more dangerous than the war itself and the enemy they were fighting. So it could very well be he could see it that way. I would think he's chosen World War One over World War Two because... Uh... I might have a reason here, if I may. Yes, please. Yes, please. Um, I've, I've heard this proposed as a theory, but I don't think that it's one that um, Hulk ever actually confirmed himself. But when he was writing the original in 1969, um, that was the time of the Vietnam War. And the Vietnam War was also being seen as a war which was, you know, absolutely futile, where people were being sent in and promised one thing, that they were going to have glory and victory over the, you know, the filthy communist hordes in in East Asia. And actually it just ended up being, you know, another war that was just, you know, death and destruction on unimaginable levels. And World War I acts as an analog of that. So when you're yes. talking about World War One and the war game, what you're really talking about is Vietnam in 1969. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. Mm-hmm. Come to think of it, I, I could, I completely miss that. Yeah. That and the fact that Carstairs and Lady Jennifer are talking about their memory loss and saying, oh, well, it's war, it's shell shock. Obviously, yeah. all the horrors we've seen. Yeah, they're, they think they're suffering from what we would now call PTSD, and God help them, I hope they don't when they get home. But I kept trying to find continuity among which other conflicts he selected, and mm-hmm. I couldn't find anything that satisfied me. Yeah, I think, well, he adds so, so many more to the book than are actually on screen for another thing. So, yeah, I think he's just going for the most bloody wars he can find. Mm-hmm. I mean, he wouldn't exactly call World War II bloodless, but compared to World War One, it's almost a cakewalk. Well, no. it's different. It's not a mechanized war, and that was the, that was the horror of World War I. It was, it was the first mechanized war, and that futility. People didn't understand how somebody dying in, you know, uh, Austro-Hungary could lead to, uh, you know, the Russian Revolution and Americans fighting in France, and it was all just so pointless and futile. And, and it, it's that, but it, it, it's the sheer mechanization of it. it, it people always say, you know, well, it's like a meat grinder or whatever, but that's, it, that was the sheer horror of it. That was what brought it home. Yeah. Kind of the mechanics of it, the way that warfare was done, even them explaining the trenches. Mm-hmm. It's like, well, that's a new way to fight, but there's still 
take turns climbing out of the trenches and running towards each other and being shot down the same way they would do, you know, in the Revolutionary War and the Civil War, Mm -hmm. all the wars previous. So do you think that he's selecting all wars that he considers futile wars, or would he just consider all wars futile wars and he wouldn't see any other category? I would say he would see all wars like that. But we need to be a little bit careful because most of the wars which are in the book are also in the broadcast version. And so some of the selections may not be Hulk. They may be Terrence Dix as well. So I don't want to I don't want to overemphasize that. Cool. Oh, you remember this war and that one. Yeah, the Boer War, for instance. Looking at that, it's like, well, yeah, yeah it's kind of a weird inclusion. I will say this. Hulk corrects an, acro- an anachronism on screen that at the time I was watching it in bed, I was just sitting there going, there's something about this that is bothering me now. And when I got to the scene in the book, I realized what it was. Uh, when they first enter the Civil War zone, in, in on television, it turns into kind of a firefight because... The Civil War soldiers all have hand revolvers. No. Hmm. <laughs> Instead, they would indeed have muzzle-loaded guns the way they do on the page, and that's why oh, they're yeah, able to get away. Oh, yeah, out, no, it'll take him 20 seconds to yeah, reload. And, and, exactly. Yeah. And so Carstairs stays behind for a very different reason. He has to be captured in a very different way in the book hmm. than he is on screen, because on screen he's staying behind because they're being shot at left and right, because they all have fucking hand revolvers, which they didn't have in the Civil War. But that's okay. It's one of the many things I like about this book, but I seem to be in the minority. <laughs> it's an improvement with restraint. He's not updating Doctor Who continuity. He's improving... He's, he is. He's, he's improving... I would say historical accuracy seems an awfully strong term to use for this book. But, but it's very close. <laughs> <laughs> he's doing his best. Yeah. It's closer than it was, let's say that at least. Even if they did get away with calling Jamie Jamie a Scots Scots barbarian, barbarian, which is just... just, just, And the Confederates have never heard of Scotland, and how could they have? (laughs) (laughs) We're such an obscure country. Whoever would have heard of it? Exactly. Someone who grew up down south. Mm-hmm. Yeah, exactly. Well, <laughs> most all of us have roots in the south, so yeah, we we know full well that they knew all about Scotland and Ireland in well, the south. I'm just we're very proud of, of it. Some of the people that I know that today probably have never heard of Scotland. Oh, really? <laughs> yeah, well, that's true. Yeah, that's true. Yeah. Well, <laughs> we have Jamie on hand to rectify any sort of factual errors that might otherwise have crept in. Thank goodness for that. Yes, he has to remind us about the Sazanax every year. And that we Scots are very humorous. I love that line. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's one of the few characterization lines that Jamie gets that I actually, uh, I actually thought really worked and was a, a noticeable improvement on the on the broadcast version. But uh, <laughs> actually, I do, I do think I feel sorry for Jamie in this. I feel he should have got kind of a bit more of a build-up given that this is his last story and given that this is uh you know like the culmination you like um you mentioned earlier though that um you know he's been on the show with every uh story except for Triton's very first one um but there's no real sort of sense of a a build-up to his departure I don't think um that's that's sort of true with Zoe as well um and they're, they're both just kind of that's one of that is one of the problems I have with this book is it's both like right well see ya and that's that. 
Well, and that, that, I think that that ending feels. I mean, I suppose there's no way it couldn't feel rushed, but it just feels rushed to me. It doesn't. It doesn't yeah. feel that way on screen at all. There is a nice emotional impact. This yeah. is something I've talked about with past novelizations we've read, where a companion leaves is in a TV show from the last twenty five years when one of the regular members of the cast leaves. They're the star of the last story they appear in, yeah. and all the companions I've seen leave. It's you know, well, the last two pages of a quick send off, and that's mm-hmm. that's very different than the way it's done now. Yeah, and that will change. In fact, because it seems like the writers lose interest more than they're written out sort of a bang the way we expect well, now. Well, partially, if if they know that they're going to do it and they prepare for it, you can get some really good ones. As a matter of fact, the next one is going to be handled much worse. Okay. <laughs> yeah, because well, no, no spoilers, but you don't even see her go. Whereas the one after that gets a very nice send-off, then the one after that gets an even better send-off, and then the one after that gets the weirdest send-off of any companion ever because the producers were hoping that the actress was going to stay, mm-hmm. and on they finally said, oh, shit, she's not. We're going to have to write this into episode six, mm-hmm. which they did. Ugh. So, yeah. <laughs> Contract negotiations are so exciting. Aren't they, though? Aren't they? <laughs> Those those damn women folk, you, they say they're going to leave and you want them to stay. and uh. Then, oh God, I should have taken her at her word. How could I have seen that coming? Yeah, exactly. Mankind is the most vicious species of all in the galaxy. I just want to talk about that moment before we move on to anything else. <laughs> Did you feel personally attacked? Well, partially. <laughs> well, the thing is, that speech is extended on the page. But it still is extended in such a way that it says the reason why mankind's the most vicious species of all in the galaxy, meaning specifically Earth, humans, Terrans, because we kill our own and because we have ever since the beginning of time and because of this and all that. And I found myself saying, Daleks, though? Yeah. (laughs) I mean, sure, they only kill their own when their own aren't their own if they think they're too weird to be Daleks. But still? Really? What do we think? Is that a little too much of a two-by-four to the head about the, the, the horrors, horrors of war? Futility. The futility? Did you think it was internally consistent with the stories that had aired up to this point and how they had portrayed other alien species? Mm. That's a point. Like, uh, to this point, what other species have killed their own? Like, within the logic of that statement, is it internally consistent um, with yeah. what's that broadcast up to nineteen? You know, that is a point. That is a point. Well, the Daleks and the Khaleds. I mean, that's the second well, Doctor Who story. That is true. That is true. Except at that point, we don't. Well, at that point, we figure that the, um, the Daleks and the Thals are two separate species, so it's not really, you know, destroying themselves so much. I'm I'm not sure you're right. I think there's a line in the Daleks about um, the radiation mutated the, uh, a certain part of the Daleks and they, they right. have to move inside the city. I think there is a line in there. I'm not 100% sure, but I think so. They branch off from the same species. Okay, I think you're yeah. right. Except by that point, they're no longer really the same species. Well, uh, well, that depends how you define a species, though, doesn't it? <laughs> this goes back to how our defi- defining a monster, a monster some, some <laughs> yeah. time back. I'm sorry, Dalton and Allison. This must be really riveting for you guys. <laughs> no, no, I, I, I persecute Dalton over. I, I say he asserts that there's no such thing as a monster because his his categorization is so strict. <laughs> 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 I have a hard time about it. Yeah. 
you know, besides they they still have my Christmas tree to look at, so since it hasn't been taken it's down. It's truly yet. a monster. Yeah. Sean Luke. <laughs> yes, it's still in there. Anything else we want to bring up about this apart from Actually to go back yeah. Yes, it is interesting. Because I yeah. because it is interesting that we're we're reading it in twenty nineteen. It's an adaptation in nineteen seventy nine of something originally aired in 1969. Mm-hmm. And that's actually the most interesting part of it. As they talk about the, the writer talks about these previous wars is how all these sort of hot takes of the moment, if you will. Right. So it is interesting. Hmm. Both yeah. their, both the social commentary, but also the internal logic of the series itself. Yeah. And we've actually heard lines like that on Doctor Who before too, where they've, Earth has been a very specific target. And in fact, the story ends with the Time Lord saying, you have a special knowledge of Earth, and mm-hmm. it seems to be particularly vulnerable to this sort of thing. Yeah. But vulnerability and the fact that we are the most vicious species in the galaxy don't really seem to go together. It seems like we should be able to hold off any invaders if we're that vicious. Maybe we need the green crystal found only on the planet of the Time Lords that is needed to run a TARDIS. Mm-hmm. That was the weirdest thing ever. <laughs> Green I, it won't last. It won't last. Bill and Ted's Excellent Adventure is now on Amazon Prime. <laughs> I was rewatching that earlier this week. I was terribly disappointed and ashamed that when this came out, it was my favorite movie ever. Oh, it's terrible. In my yeah. defense, but I love it. I was nine years old when it came out. Nine or ten. That being said, oh well, yeah. Does this age better or worse than Bill and Ted's well, Excellent Adventure? This, well, is it, wait, wait, this I would say ages this, much which better. Which came out exactly 10 years after this novelization That's did. true. It's that actually a much different tone. It's a much different tone. Excellent! <laughs> oh, good God. I do want to talk about the, the trial real quick, in which the doctor is saying it isn't a very good TARDIS. It doesn't change shape and it won't go where I want it to go and trying to defend himself for taking such a bum <laughs> TARDIS. But it's one of those lines that gets answered by, of all people, Neil Gaiman, when he has the episode The Doctor's Wife in which the TARDIS takes over a human. She tells him in that story she doesn't always take him where he wants to go, but she always takes him where he needs to go. Mm-hmm. So there's an answer to that, even if it is, you know, several decades on. I still think his defense on screen is just, (sighs) it's slightly better, but he still starts with the quarks as one of the villains out there in the universe that he has to fight off. Give me a thought channel and I'll show you some of the evils I've been fighting against. The quarks. Oh my I God. think I think that's right because if there is one thing you want to make sure that never ever happens again, surely it's the quarks, <laughs> or at least the story of the Dominators. I can yeah, hear exactly. less about the quarks. They they actually come off quite well in their later appearances, but <laughs> oh dear lord! But the fact that the Time Lord Judge even says that the Doctor has raised di- difficult issues and we'll sh- we shall have to think about them. Even if you don't believe in the Series 6B theory, the fact that he's put that seed in their minds and that's that same seed that's going to lead to the Time War, which is probably the worst thing the Time Lords could ever have done, kind of proves the notion, be careful what you ask for, because the Doctor wanted them to be more involved, and hey, they're involved. Jesus. Uh, can we talk about how cavalier the Doctor is about the execution of the Warlord, kind of gleeful? Bravo, he says, good riddance. I noticed that. That caught me off guard. 
Yeah. What, JG, what does he say on screen? It's different than that, isn't it? Uh, yes, it is different. I don't remember the exact words, but it, 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 he is also dismissive. Now, is he happy I have, excited? No, I mean, he's not dancing up and down in the spot. And, you know, it's Triton, so he could very easily have been. Yeah. Um, but the, he, I think if I, I don't remember the exact line, but I think he just sort of looks down into one side. So it's not, it, it's ambiguous, let's say it that way. Ah, well, that's putting an end to them. Uh, well, we'll be on our way. Come on, Doctor. Cheerio. Uh, but I have, a whole, I have a whole theory about Triton's Doctor and, and this trial and the way it leads into the third Doctor. But really? I'll let you decide if you want me to tell you what it is. Well, that would, be, that would be appropriate because once we're done discussing what we're discussing about the book, I want to talk about the Doctor's run the second doctor in general Let me just say that briefly, but in yeah. the book it bravo explained the doctor good riddance he looked up i'm glad my evidence was so useful to the court he turned to zoe and jamie come along we better continue with our travels. he does do that i'm surprised he, there were blood to drink he drink it is what it seems like <laughs> so what less ambiguous here than you're describing on the screen but i'm interested well, to hear your theory I think he says so. something more along the lines of i'm glad the time of the, the justice of the time lords is still so uh, God, it's some line like that where he's puffing them up, basically, yeah. and saying, okay, well, we're going to go now, and they don't. Yeah. <laughs> so, sorry, you're, you say so you've got a theory about Trump. Yes, we want to hear this. Yeah, um, well, it, it's it's about the entirety of the Triton run. Um, see, there's a line in, uh, this is not my theory, by the way, this is a theory that I'm reciting. I would hate to try and claim that this was mine originally. It's not, but it's one that I very much like, which is that... Um, Right, you guys have done the whole of Triton now, so you know that there are a lot of base under sieges oh, and yeah, a so lot of repetition okay. across uh, kind of Triton's era. And however good Triton is in the role, and he's never less than brilliant. I, of course, I love Triton. Everybody loves Triton. And I, I, I love Jamie. Not quite a top five companion for me, but he, I, he's still great. He's still a brilliant companion. And, and it's the characters that make that era work, I think, better than necessarily a lot of the scripting now there's a line a very famous line in the tomb of the cyberman where the doctor says you know the, the universe has uh, bred the most terrible things they must be fought um and that's more or less what the Triton doctor does throughout his entire run but the thing is even although there's a few decent stories in there um a lot of that run is in terms of the stories are very soulless and especially like when you get to things like um the seeds of death where the doctor is kind of gleefully annihilating the ice warriors or, or whatever it's become like fighting monsters is all that doctor who becomes about and so in a way the doctor coming to the conclusion at the end of the war games that he needs the help of the time lords is him kind of acknowledging that he has reached the limit of what just fighting monsters is Ooh. and he is cast down for it he is punished for that and it, he because he comes he he has a sort of apotheosis he he acknowledges that he has got as far as he can go and the third doctor being cast down to earth is kind of a repudiation of that kind of you know that kind of bloodlust almost of the of the mm -hmm. second doctor just annihilating monster after monster after monster and it's only once the third doctor is able to kind of reconnect with his in inverted commas humanity and see a bigger picture understand that things work on a personal level as well as a sort of fighting monsters level that he is finally able to gain his freedom 
from Earth again in the Three Doctors. He he gets that by 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 sort of making friends with first with Liz Shaw, who eventually he comes to respect, then the Brigadier, who becomes a, a friend through sort of multiple regenerations, and then finally with Joe Grant, who becomes such a key companion for the Third Doctor, really his his first his his most important companion. And so when he finally acknowledges that he has to do more than just fight monsters. He he has more to defend and more to live for. Then he's able to regain his access to time and space. And I love that theory of the second Doctor and then the war games is the con kind of conclusion to that and then sort of leading into the third Doctor's era. So yeah. Tony, you said it was an expanded speech when he says that the humans are the most vicious because they kill their own. Right. In the same novelization where he is more gleeful than on screen about his own executing his Well, own. it's the war chief that says that about humanity okay um, but do you think he's but yeah, maybe I, agreeing with the speech yeah 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 he probably would and i definitely i definitely appreciate jg's theory and i think it's right i think you can also see early glimmers of it whenever this happens more often than not whenever the pertwee um doctor encounters what we would traditionally call a monster instead of trying to destroy it he instead tries to make friends with them, hmm. sometimes exactly. to the sometimes to the detriment of everybody else, to the point that he looks like he's switching sides. At one point, he's even the brigadier even thinks he's become a traitor because he's seems to have shifted sides, and it's because probably the brigadier is used to the Troughton Doctor going in and killing Yeti and killing Cybermen and being absolutely bloodthirsty about it. It really is odd, isn't it? Because you get you get Troughton who you look at him and you look at that doctor and you think this couldn't be the person who is later called by the doc uh, the Daleks the bringer of darkness or the Draconians the oncoming storm. Even though the new series says the Daleks calls him that calls him that, but what have you? And yet, yeah. He absolutely personifies this, I'm Shiva, bringer of death, watch me, <laughs> watch me burn. Up to this point, I thought we'd seen him mostly be so enthusiastic about the death of what, or in so, by some definition, a mechanical species, in yeah. some way robotic. Yeah, and come to think of it, going back to Gigi's theory, I think it's interesting that the two times that he refers to what they do on a regular basis are both in Jerry Davis stories, they're both in Cybermen stories. When he says there are corners of the universe that have bred the most terrible things, they must be fought, that's in the moon base. And then when he's talking to Victoria about why she should stay on the TARDIS with them, he says, nobody in the universe can do what we're doing. And they're two sides of the same coin, aren't they? They're, they're the one where he's the unlikely gladiator who isn't dressed for the part, and the other side, which is very much the wanderer explorer that the first doctor always claimed to be <laughs> and they're both Troughton and I think that's kind of brilliant about him it's just a shame that the stories most of them suck <laughs> they do in fact I, I just recently heard I just recently read this and it certainly smacks to something that the reason why there's so many base under these stories is because the producers specifically commissioned them because they were cheaper to produce hmm. it's like Jesus that explains everything. In other words, for financial rather than creative reasons. And of that course. tells you all you really need to know exactly. about a show which is supposed to be based on imagination. Yeah, yeah, precisely. Big surprise. Yeah, now the Pertwee era is going to run into a similar problem. At least it can get around it. The Troughton stories can't. Troughton, however, 
Yeah, I'm going to miss Zoe. I'm going to miss Jamie. Don't really miss Victoria much. (laughs) (laughs) I I always felt like Victoria was on the verge of being great and just never quite developed. Yeah. And unfortunately, she was on the verge of being great in her first story, and it just kind of Yeah, it was always on the verge. Well, Zoe was a little bit the same way. Well, I don't know, though. I mean, Zoe leaves the TARDIS much the same way as she joins it. Pointlessly and randomly? (laughs) <laughs> well, yes, <laughs> that too, if we're being unkind. Thank you, Mr. McQuarrie. All right, so, well, anything else you want to say about this book, about the second Doctor run, about the books we remember liking, the books we hated primarily from this run? Like we should be playing If You Don't Know Me By Now in the background. <laughs> <laughs> really sentimental. Now I'm going to have to track that down and play it over the podcast. Thank you ever so much. <laughs> Remember, I've seen this doctor on, I've seen Trouton on screen for, I think, a few minutes. That's true. And you've talked about him being the hardest doctor to write. Yeah. So I, I feel very little sense of loss because the type of performance he was doing was seemingly so much more challenging to translate to the page mm-hmm. than Troughton's more straightforward verbal aggression. Okay. So to me, he always seemed a, a pretty thin cipher, but that's mm. not at all the fault of the actor. It's just the sort of the elusiveness of trying to capture the characterization, I think. Yeah, let's say so, Don. I love Troughton. <laughs> I've always loved Troughton from the first story. I, right. I kind of picked up on the physical comedy of it. And even even where it wasn't written, I was imagining it. Hmm. I was kind of fleshing it out in my own head. Okay. Um, kind of that physicality that that was there. Yeah. Um, I really enjoyed him. This is not the kind of send-off I was expecting yeah. for any of the regulars, <laughs> but it's what we get. Uh, so I'm not mad about it, as I have been in the past. <laughs> some of the some of the the loss of other companions, but uh, we'll see where it goes. Um, okay. and as I'm I'm sitting here, you you were saying, is there anything else? Uh, Sidrat, Sidrat, yes. Um, which <laughs> doesn't really stand for anything. It's just Tardis jumbled backwards. up. Yeah, it's backwards. <laughs> it's, it's backwards. <sighs> which would be. Space in, I don't know. Yeah, I mean, it's different. Uh, excuse, excuse me, but it does stand for something. Thank you very yeah. much. Right, okay, you know better than I do. What does it stand for? Page 34. It's in the book you've just read. Is it? Really? Yeah. Yes. General Smythe's Space and Intertime Directional Robot All-Purpose Transporter, known by its initials, Side Rats. Oh, that's yeah. right. Well, I have an excuse. I'm the oldest one here. <laughs> so, I'm allowed to be a little bit um, ongoing Alzheimer's uh, moments. Um, oh, you're right. It is there. You're right. So I, <laughs> I stand right. I mean, it's still terrible. It <laughs> I'm not defending oh, it. It's awful. It is awful. <laughs> now, here's the interesting thing, though. And there was a missing line from the original script in oh. which the doctor would have said there are various time space faring races. <laughs> which the Warlords are one, which is why they're the Warlords, they've got the Time Lords, which almost makes this an internecine type of thing between two races that are kind of of fighting each other for dominance. But, yeah. I don't know. I mean, I'm kind of glad it's over, but... (laughs) (laughs) I get bases under siege and people running up and down corridors, climbing up and down ladders and mineshafts. But also, I was never the audience for the sort of holy fool 
fucking doctor. Right. I just don't respond well to that kind of character. He could never possibly be brilliant enough for me to care about that mm. sort of thing. But I did like the companion in this era. Good. Okay. Good. So. Well, we all love Jamie, so that's all right. (laughs) (laughs) Not that I'm I'm biased or anything. No, no, no. It's like like that old Beach Boys song, I wish they all could be Caledonian boys. (laughs) (laughs) So so you didn't think he was like the noble savage most of the time? Like just about like growling and urinating on screen? Oh God! I don't know. I, even I wouldn't have gone that far. Just, they had toilets in 1746. I, they didn't need to grenade on the ground. I didn't think you'd know like it from Sanonics. the books. I thought they played him off almost as a caveman. Well, <laughs> I don't yeah. know what I hate from the books, that's possibly true. It, it's hard to imagine that characterization if you've actually uh, if you've actually met Fraser Hines. But, uh, yeah. I'm talking about I'm how some people wrote him, not at yeah, all. The, I, the I actor who I understand is. I would agree. I would that's agree. fair. That is fair. Of course, <laughs> he did kind of go on to play that sort of character on Emmerdale Farm, but uh, that's for another reason, I would say. <laughs> oh, God. Now I thought I'm going to get myself in trouble with the Emmerdale fans now. Um, <laughs> there, there aren't any. Good. <laughs> They're all <laughs> right, Rightly so. They all died ages ago. You're not going to get another Caledonian boy until 1987, are you? Nope, it's going to be a while now. And, now, and then he's going to be the lead. Huh? Yeah, well, you know. And once, once you start getting Scottish guys in the lead, you just can't stop them. Yeah, even though every once in a while they'll be made to do weird accents. No, that's true. That's true. But you can't have everything, can you? No, no, you really can't. And sometimes you can't have anything. But all right. So, any any last thoughts on the book before we head into the Goodreads? Is this the most compressed one we've read? No, I would say not. Um, And here's why: because I said before we started recording, and uh, JG didn't get to hear me say this. This is the sort of job I wish Ian Martyr had done on Enemy of the World. Because that's a six-parter. He's trying to compress it to 126. He's taking out stuff that has to be there. Yeah. Hulk is taking out stuff that has to be there, but he's giving it a line of dialogue. He's doing all these nice things to make it still fit and work together. So maybe not the most compressed book. JG, what do you think? Is it? I think it is just purely in terms of length versus length. I mean, 10 episodes re- reduced down to that page count. I don't think it could help be anything else. Yeah. But, um, yeah, you're, you're not wrong about Enemy of the World. And um, one of the reasons I sort of wanted to pose the question earlier on about whether, you know, Terrence Dix would have made a, a sort of better or, or different job of this is because when you have these writers who sort of knock out quite a few of these books, you kind of, you can't help become sort of adapted to their style. I haven't read Enemy in the World in a, a very, very long time, um, but I can imagine Martyr being a very good fit with that because I know his writing style. Um, but I, I, with this one, um, I, I, I've, I've said it before, but I, I feel a lot of the minutiae is, is lacking, and that's why this book felt very flat to me. But the, the compression is not in and of itself uh, a, a particular issue here. It's just the, the little bits that can't help be left out, and there's nothing you can do about that when you're reducing something by this kind of margin. Yeah, that's true. Mm-hmm. That is true. Maybe it's just I don't miss the minutiae quite as much, but... Well, you know, your test just isn't as, as highly refined as mine. That's all. <laughs> I'll have you know, I'm just, I come from the same sort of Scottish blood as you do, so even if that's deluded by barbarian Americans over the generation. Far, far more importantly, the same kind of Doctor Who fan. Well, yes, that's true. 
<laughs> All right, I think we're ready for Goodreads. As we always do. Let's go to goodreads.com for online reviews of the book written by other readers and follow up with their own ratings. By the way, if you're listening to this podcast and want to have your review featured when we get to an upcoming book or you simply have a question about it, simply read the book, write a review, and comment in our Goodreads group by deadline so that we have a chance to see it before discussing the book ourselves. You may just get your review read out loud here. The average rating for this book out of five stars is 3.77, which is... It's not the highest score we've ever had, but it's still pretty high. What was that last book a slaughter? Like 2.8 yeah, or something? Yeah, 2.9. Uh, uh, Space Pirates was just in the toilet, as well it should be, because that's where pieces of shit go. Um, Michael gives it two stars, saying, albeit inaccurately, the final story of the Second Doctor's era suffers under the target mandate. The two books could only run 126 pages. It's more than that, so while there's a lot of running around to fill out 10 episodes of the war games on screen, distilling it down to 12 pages per episode leaves you with feeling like this is a Cliff, Cliff's Notes version of the story. Tom Hodden, our old friend, gives it a much more reasonable four stars, saying, This is the most quote-unquote Doctor Who novelization feeling book I've ever read. With Malcolm Hulk's efficient writing style, lots of action, adventure, and daring escapes, an interesting science fiction dilemma, and an alien mastermind whose plan that is uh, whose plan is suitably bonkers, the limited page count clips back the story and thunders through it at a breakneck pace, without feeling abridged or edited or leaving a feel of this would make sense if we had a little more time. That's not to say there aren't areas that would have benefited from a little more exploration, where a few more scenes might have added a layer of depth. Little glimpses of what happened to the soldiers who passed selection, were they the security guards we saw, what war they sent to fight. In at, last one, in at least one scene, the story suffers a little because of the literal description of what was on screen rather than a more imaginative explanation of a fantastical idea. Somehow the results are charming and fun, everything an adventure serial should be. And finally, Keir Hansen gives it four stars, saying, actually a quite enjoyable novelization, made some improvements on consolidating scenes so that the pacing issues with the original broadcast, which were extremely long, ten episodes when aired, oof, and kept the slow reveal of the Time Lord's first introduction to Doctor Who fans interesting. Hulk did a fair job capturing Jamie's persona and trans to some extent, but felt short with Zoe, there you go, typical of the time, but an injustice to Wendy Padbury. Hmm, that sounds pretty accurate. Yeah. Allison, out of five stars, what would you give this? Just kind of mixed strong feelings because I appreciate a good sort of progressive revelation I thought we had here. Mm -hmm. And yet using a demographic as a substitute for personality profile so annoyed me mm -hmm. that, I, I don't know, so strongly was annoyed by that <laughs> and yet enjoyed the overall structure of the story. So I'm not... They're going to neutralize themselves into a number that doesn't mean anything. Hmm. It's both too high and too low at the same time. So I'm going to go three, but you really shouldn't listen to what I say. Okay. Well, <laughs> noted. All right, Dalton. <laughs> three is very high for that, me. That'll make future episodes but, much easier. But three is actually incredibly high for that me. That is high Three so is generous. That may be the highest yeah. you've ever given something. No, I've given somebody a 3.5, but oh, it is much true. higher than yeah. usual. And that's partly because at the end, the sort of opening up into the much larger world really was fresh and new relative to what we have seen before. That's true. It actually was sort of delightful and surprising. Okay, Don. Um, Out of five, I would say 3.5, so I'm kind of on the same page as Allison. Uh, 
I really liked the pacing. I liked all of the kind of adventure elements. Those are the books that really appeal to me are the ones that kind of clip along. There's a lot going on, but it, it goes. Um, yeah, there were, there were some larger ideas at play that I would have liked maybe fleshed out a little more. But, you know, um, given, given the sheer amount that he had to work with, and had had to cut it down. Um, it still felt pretty pretty meaty and chunky, and there was a lot going on. So okay. uh, three point five for me. Um, sad to to see the regulars go, but mm-hmm. uh, excited to kind of see what the future holds. I have to admit, I'm I, I consider us lucky. You've never referred to a Dick's book as meaty and chunky. JG, right, uh, <laughs> out of five stars, what would you give this? How meaty and chunky was this book for you? <laughs> Uh, two point nine seven one. I think I would probably give it. It's not. It's not. I've worked that out very, very carefully to the word. Um, I, it's 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 okay. It's not my war games. Uh, it's somebody else's war games. I don't think it does a bad job of uh, getting across uh, what the TV show was trying to achieve, uh, and it certainly clips along. Um, I wish the characterization had been a bit stronger, and I think the trial at the end is a bit weak, but it's not a complete disaster. <laughs> okay. Boy, wow. So, <laughs> which is going to make mine sound not, just positively not a complete disaster. Not a complete disaster. Yeah, they, they put that as a cover blurb night. I was about to say, not a complete disaster. Oh, <laughs> Lord. Whereas I actually would give this a four. And part of the reason is one, I am very taken with um, Hulk's pro style, which is just going to get better with it in his earlier novels. You could tell here. Not only is he having to condense a lot of stuff, but also he's probably quite ill at the time. I'm almost certain he was doing this book while he was ill. Um, So the fact that it even reads as well as it does is kind of surprising. And two, I'm looking at it from a writer's point of view and thinking, okay, you've got this vast ten-part story and you need to crunch it down. What are the essentials? What do you keep? What do you lose? And what do you need to emphasize? And I think, except for only two little bits, and I can't even remember what they were, but I put them in my notes. There are only two little bits of this book that I think actually suffered from the compression, and the rest of it, I think, just is a much better story because of the compression. And I really enjoy this a lot, including that ending that the two Time Lords saying, oh, he would have brightened up the place no end. That mm-hmm. is just a lovely, lovely kind of coda to what's going to come. So, yeah, I would give this a four simply because I will, I'm sure I will say this again when we get to more stories of his. Hulk is the strongest there is. Hulk is strongest there is! Yes. Sorry. Had to make that comic book reference in there so yeah and nobody laughed and nobody should we're just okay. gonna let you struggle with that one <laughs> thank you i appreciate that yeah well I, I i thank you for letting me twist in the wind we're terrible house guests you really are okay so 
Thank you, guys. Uh, JG, just a reminder where we can find your podcast and how often do your episodes appear? Uh, certainly, yeah. We are, as mentioned before, talking who to you, and we are in all the usual podcasty places. So you can find us on SoundCloud, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and very excitingly, we are now on Spotify. Really? Yeah. Um, yeah, yeah. Look at bastard. that. Like a modern. <laughs> <Big bastard>. <laughs> <laughs> I'm so envious. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah, well, it's it's not the achievement, it sounds like. Um, you can also find us on Twitter, at Talking Who To You. I, myself, am not on Twitter, as I'm a grown-up. And, uh, yeah, you can uh, you can pick up our episodes every week. Whereas we are on Twitter, but that's fine. Um, I, I do feel a little bit like the sixth doctor trying to grab the remote control out of the second doctor's hand when he says that he's got a Staten High remote control. That's how I'm feeling right now. You got on Spotify? I've always wanted one of those. And we're on Spotify. Yeah, take that. Oh, we're not even on Podbean, you damn it all. That's fine. That's fine. That's fine. You made them your mortal enemy. I know. But I would I would welcome them back. So okay. wait, 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 wait. That's a story I need to hear. What about Podbean? Yes. Oh, it's I, I said some cruel and unusual things you about. You could Podbean. never take back. I, I could probably never take simply because they are ridiculously expensive. And that's why we don't appear on Podbean, because we can't afford it yet. Well, that's a good reason. Yeah, I think so. I think so. Well, thank you guys. And thank you, fellow time travelers, for giving us your valuable time. Next time, we enter a new era with the podcast, with our discussion of the novelization of John Pertwee's first story, renamed from Spearhead from Space to The Autumn Invasion. And believe me, there are going to be a lot more of those. We also get some new art on our Facebook page and new opening music for the podcast, so let us know what you think. If you hate them, tell us. If you love them, tell us. They probably won't change either way. In the meantime, if you've liked what you've heard here, like us on Facebook at uh, Doctor Who Target Book Club Podcast, all in words in the spaces. You can visit our subreddit at reddit.com forward slash... Oh shit. reddit.com forward slash r forward slash dwtargetbc. Feel free to watch videos of our first 12 episodes and give us a thumbs up or comment on YouTube at youtube.com forward slash user forward slash emperdalek forward slash videos. You can also, of course, catch uh, emperdalek's commutes in which I sit behind the wheel of my car on I-55 and bitch about it. And you can follow us on Twitter because we're not adults. We're at DWTargetPC. <laughs> or subscribe to us via the podcast provider of your choice. If all else fails you, and it inevitably will, email us at DWTargetBC at gmail.com. Thank you very much for listening. Thank you again, JG. Thank you for having me. Thank you for being had. Mm-hmm. And enjoy your travels. <laughs> Bye-bye. Time has come for you to change your appearance, Doctor, and begin your exile. Is this some sort of joke? No, I, I refuse to be cheated in... What are you doing? Stop! You're making me giddy! No! You can't do this to me! I... No! No!